Peace and love. You are now listening to a dope public health podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, I have an amazing guest. Um, who brings a wealth of knowledge, experience, as well as a love for the hip hop culture, which is something that I also have. So, I'd like to welcome Mariah Parker. Welcome. welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a county commissioner, I'm a hip hop artist, but I am also getting my PhD in language and literacy education at the University of Georgia, okay. where I also earned my master's degree in linguistics. And so I actually look at the uses of hip hop in the classroom to teach both civics education and argumentative essay writing. Uh-huh. Um, and so particularly I'm looking at um, hip hop songs addressing the uprising of 2020, um, as well as um, speeches given you know a couple of viral speeches that arose from the protest movement sure. and how we can leverage uh, texts like this in the classroom to inspire discussion of of real world um events um but also teach kids how to, not to lose their voice mm-hmm. when they are writing for academic context we're often like forced to like learn how to code switch or you know leave that at home that's not how we talk when we do this or that But actually, voice can be a really powerful way to signal your authoritative knowledge on the subject. Like when you come in and you use lingo from the streets, you signal like, yo, I really know what I'm talking about because I live out here and I've experienced this stuff. So that's a little bit of what my research centers on. Um, And hopefully I'll be out of here in a year. Nice. So talk about so you bring up a great point when you talk about like code switching right so there's you know like you're talking about like right before we you know started this like you you do research so you you have the empirical evidence so to speak but then also how do you bridge that empirical evidence you know evidence-based uh with lived experience how how do you weave how do you weave that into to, to what you do absolutely uh, wedding the micro and the macro of thinking about how lived experience can inform public policy, but also how um, new framings that emerge from uh, scientific ways of looking at public problems, mm-hmm. how we can bring those framings into the community to help them understand what they're experiencing so that we can fight together for change is a lot of the work that I do. So I do go out a lot uh, canvassing, talking to people at gas stations talking to people like cookouts and fish fries and things like that and um, just listening to the to the things that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. oftentimes folks have a really keen diagnosis Mm -hmm. of the issues but because of the failures of bad public policy and like the you know broad scale disinvestment and neglect of communities of color folks don't know how to translate that all the time into like what kind of change you want to see. I remember when I was out on the campaign trail Mm -hmm. and I was knocking on doors and talking to people, asking people like in the most, you know, the most dangerous poverty stricken neighborhood in the city, like, Hey, what would you want to see, you know, change around here? What would you like, you know, to see different Mm -hmm. folks would talk about the problems, but not how to, how to fix it. So I, had, you know, these shootings on the block, I really wish they would stop or, you know, my kids be getting advice in school and things like that. But like, well, what do you want to see different? Like people would just draw a blank, be like, hmm, I don't know. And so another example is at a recent cookout mm-hmm. and, re- and recently in general in conversations around gun violence in the city. I've been out talking to people 
just about like what we should do. And, you know, these are people who got family members in gangs, have lost family members to gun violence, have been incarcerated themselves for, mm-hmm. you know, getting into scuffles, whatnot. And everybody's been talking about youth development. Man, we need to invest in these kids. We need to get these kids in some programs. We yes. need to show these kids they're cared about and give them like a social, a positive social environment. Like, why, why ain't y'all like funding that? And when I explained to them that we spend 40% of our city budget on the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and can't, and, you know, allegedly can't afford the kinds of programming that they feel like would keep their community safe, their minds are blown. They had never thought about that before. And so that's a way of like both listening and taking and taking in what the community um, says its needs, but then like also mm-hmm. putting it into a framework. In this case, you know, I study the work of like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And so I come at things with like an abolitionist frame. Yeah. And so bringing that frame to the community. So when they're like, we need to get this, it's like, well, this is why it hasn't happened yet. Let's come together and like fight the system. Um, you know, putting forward solutions, but also with like a broader view of where we need to go as a community. Mm-hmm. And I had the pleasure to um, see you. You were a keynote speaker at the Summit on Poverty um, mm-hmm. just a few weeks ago. Um, um, <clears throat> I attended uh, through for, from in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And one of the things that stuck out that you spoke about was um, while you're on the campaign trail, and then you talked about how you almost like become a liaison where you, how, how did you go about building that rapport? Because I, I know when you were giving your keynote, you, you initially spoke about like, at first, you know, folks were kind of like, well, who is this? But then slowly but surely you built that rapport and the confidence of the community. Can you talk a little bit about that to maybe folks that might be listening that, hey, I'm, I'm trying to do something similar and I'm, you know, I'm running into dead end. Like, what, can you speak to that a little bit? important things that I learned which is the like the value of repetition like I think in that talk that I gave I talk about going back mm-hmm. over and over again even when people laughed at me even when people didn't want to talk to me mm-hmm. I'll go back anyway and listen and through a repeated conversation like hey have you thought anymore about you know what I said about this and that people started to to put forward ideas people started to feel comfortable with sharing or you know feeling valued like their voice was being heard and, you know, um, uh, corollary of that was that, you know, I was the first politician that had ever showed up in these people's neighborhood mm. to ask them, to even ask them what they need. Wow. And through that, coming to see that just showing up is so vital. Like, just being there for, just being there for people. Like, I, every time there's a shooting, I go to the funeral and, you know, meet with the family. I go to the fish fries. I go to the cookouts. Not necessarily for like some sort of grand political, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mission, but like showing up for people and just being in their spaces and there's a way of showing like you are valued. I like, you know, we are allies in whatever fight you got. And so I try, I see a lot of like white, particularly like political organizations. We have organizations mm-hmm. for Athens and everyone uh, recently Athens area BSA has been, you know, trying to make moves in the community. I would try to like, tell people like you just need to show up for other people's fights like you might want to like you know fight for housing for all or you know reimagining public safety or whatever but Mm -hmm. how are you just showing up for the fights people are already engaged in and showing 
your solidarity as a way to build that coalition so y'all can fight for bigger stuff. And maybe you can transform their imagination of what they can do. Like you might start off just trying to get like, all right, this lady got mold in her basement mm-hmm. and she got asthma and she can't breathe. So we go do a fundraiser to get her some money to get this fixed up. But through that, you build that trust where we, when you come in and start speaking about radical ideas, she gonna listen. Right. And so there, that is such a valuable part of it too, to showing up for other people's fights and showing up just to be in community with people and not always having a political agenda. Yeah, and I think another thing, another great point you bring up, um, you know, when when some people hear the word radical, it it literally like, oh, it some people like are taking it back, but like the work itself is truly just from my experience, and maybe you can talk about even your studies in public health. It's how what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's just challenging the status quo, just really trying to. Why are we doing this? Have we considered something else? Right. And so Angela Davis once said, to be radical is simply to grasp things by the root. Hmm. And so in my work, you know, with what I define as radicalism is studying what the root cause of our problems are and not merely treating the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So with regards to our epidemic of mass incarceration or gun violence, you got to trace it all the way back to slavery Mm -hmm. and see that, you know, think about the fact that you know, General Sherman withdrew his troops from the South before Reconstruction was complete. And so you left all these newly freed slaves to be preyed upon by Jim Crow laws and the Black Codes and other forms of economic exploitation and imprisonment of, of like, you know, incarceration rising up as a way to maintain social control over, you know, dark bodies. And so tracing it all the way back to that root, you're able to see a little more radically but i would say clearly why we have the problems today that we have and how to solve them Uh yeah because one of the things that you know it's the the data speaks for itself as far as like um crime um just with just thinking about the last two years with the pandemic things like crime and other things like that in certain cities even specifically um milwaukee or other places those things are going up and like you said it's the what gets promoted and pushed is just the surface level but like so how do you talk to folks that like okay well I'm just tired of young kids speeding or I'm tired of the violence how do you get um you know different citizens in the community to understand that that root cause piece that you speak to I literally will ask people if somebody's like well, I, you know, we need the police because my house got broken into last week. Um, and the, and they showed up late and just, you know, took a little a police report and they left. Mm-hmm. And like, well, we need them to be stronger so they can respond to these issues. I'll, I'll just ask somebody, why do you think that person broke into your house? Mm. Maybe they had kids at home that they had to feed. So they sold that TV. Maybe they're battling drug addiction and they, you know, trying to feed their habit. Okay, so why is that the case? Why did why aren't those kids hungry in that person's house? Why can't this uh, individual get uh, substance abuse treatment? Or what traumas have led them to be substance abusers in the first place? And just go backward and backward mm-hmm. through the causes that actually gave rise to this crisis, that gave rise to somebody getting their TV stolen, and then see like, all right, these there are other ways. So in this case, the police didn't prevent the crime from happening. Mm-hmm. But 
if that person had access to substance abuse recovery resources to back to, you know, defeat their addiction, this wouldn't happen to you. If those kids were hungry at home because we had community gardens in the neighborhood where they could get fresh food, wow. this wouldn't have happened. And start to reframe public safety as all these preventative things that we could be doing in order to actually, you know, keep people safe, like for real. Yeah. And so, yeah, like a line of like, I guess you could call it Socratic questioning of like, why do you think that is? Yeah. And why do you think that is? To lead people to the understanding rather than like pedantically trying to tell them, you know, what I think. Sure. And it leads me to like a, a phrase that I just recently learned and just speaking with people such as yourself, um, instead of, you know, looking at our communities as downtrodden or at risk, um, asset framing and like, um, just like, well, it's, it's known we are a resilient community, black and brown communities. Um, and a lot of different strengths that come out of that, that maybe could lead to more change if just viewing our communities through a strength-based perspective. Absolutely. And we got to just see the value in the very mundane seeming practices that we engage in every day, but are actually in themselves radical acts of care. Mm -hmm. I think about, like I said earlier, I go to a lot of funerals, unfortunately. And, you know, everybody shows up at the church basement afterward and shares a meal. And your auntie brings, like, the cornbread and, mm -hmm. like, this lady from your church brought some banana pudding. And, like, collectively, we have this moment of healing where it's, like, socializing joy and sorrow but being there together and breaking bread mm -hmm. like it's just this thing that happens but like like but you know healing our trauma and coming together to create a sense of community that makes us feel whole in times when we are shattered is is resiliency it's exactly like yeah like resiliency is the perfect word for it um mm -hmm. uh, but it's overlooked it's just like what does this got to do with politics what does this got to do with public health even like you know healing from trauma What's this got to do with making our community safer? Um, we got to start, definitely got to start seeing these just in, you know, practices that are indigenous to our culture as, as radical, as, you know, put, you know, pushing back against state sanctioned ways of, of dealing with crisis and truly value them because they are powerful. And I, and I think what makes your work to me, where it's, it strikes off as unique is as county commissioner, everything that I hear you saying, though, speaks to self-healing community. You're not, mm -hmm. you're not mandating or dictating. All I hear you're, you're saying is, how can we do this together? How can I help you? Um, how much of that are you seeing when you, you know, quote unquote, are doing that, that work of county commissioner? Like, are there counterparts that, that also share this perspective? I think it's interesting that uh, I've definitely seen a spectrum of engagement of like on one poll, you have people that are very committed to the macro work. That is the policy that, you know, is used to affect systemic change. Mm -hmm. Now, the other poll, you have people who are out here in the community, you know, bringing Easter baskets to the kids and, you know, speaking in elementary schools, but don't have a firm grasp of how to translate that lived understanding mm -hmm. into policy. And so like, there's various degrees in between and I myself you know I feel like I swing back and forth through periods where I'm like really out in the streets mm -hmm. and then really like you know in city hall like you know and doing this late night research into like the latest criminological science on how you know whether car incarceration works and things like that 
And so, um, yeah, so it is difficult to unite those perspectives. I can't even say I do it as effectively as I perhaps could, but it is a learning process. Um, but I've seen, I have seen how, I have seen communication breakdowns between people mm-hmm. that are obsessed with the numbers and crunching the numbers and looking at the data, but it don't go out and talk to nobody in the streets. And the people who are out, you know, go to three different church services on Sunday to go shake hands to everybody, but don't, you know, apply an analytical lens to what they're hearing in those church pews. Mm-hmm. And so, and it leads, it gives rise to fighting when it's like, if only we could come to value everybody's different ways of approaching it and get a little bit more in the middle of that spectrum where we, you know, we're studying and fighting, you know, that praxis of like theory and action together. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we'd be more productive, but nah, man, we'd be fighting out here because somebody who like says they know the people doesn't at all apply an analytical lens to the Uh work and the opposite as well. People try to impose solutions when they don't actually know what it is to experience um, trauma, you know, crisis on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Wow. And and that's just very powerful. Just being that authentic about like, this is not a perfect formula. This is not a perfect formula because the problem is so robust and it's not going to be, oh, well, just one administration and then a few different elections and now everything's fixed. It just, you know, talk to me like, so I'm, I've done a little bit of public health studying. And one of the things that I hear is that, especially when you hear policy change, it's like, um, like Nipsey, it's, it's the marathon. It's not something that, like, don't look for something to happen overnight. If you can maybe speak to some of the things that are kind of appearing in, in, in some of your current studies. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, I think we're only recently coming to embrace and, and, and very much, you know, that, that embrace is only coming from, you know, sections of the populace. Uh, a lot of people are still rejecting. Uh, criminological evidence that, for example, incarceration does not have an impact, like zero, like, you know, no impact Mm. on rates of reoffense. So it is not a way of keeping people from from committing crimes again if they have been labeled a criminal. Mm -hmm. So um, skeptics of mass incarceration have been saying that since the 1970s. And in fact, there was a burgeoning movement in the 1970s to um closed prisons because the prison rate had dropped so much um before suddenly in like the reagan you know the reaganism with regard to like law and order gave rise to mass incarceration so i say this because when you talk about like the longevity of the fight Uh with regards to particularly leveraging the data to fight for new solutions it takes a really long time for that kind of information that proven like it is now a criminological fact mm-hmm. that incarceration does not reduce in- recidivism like when you look at when you look at the broad scale of it mm-hmm. but um it has taken so long to seed that idea and let it grow to the point that people are listening let alone actually implementing solutions that take that data into account and so i try to like I like try to remind activists because I work very collaboratively like activists and like policy stuff like we've been fighting slavery since 1863 
Mm-hmm. Like to this day, we are fighting to emancipate our people and they will continue to fight long after any of us are here. Right. But what we can do to spread awareness of, you know, like the facts, like like the, like the criminological facts that incarceration does not reduce recidivism. Like that is important work as well. In addition to, and it's like a foundational part of the work of actually changing the policy. Okay. And then when you change the policy, the impacts of that policy change are not felt for years, if not decades into the future. Once the impacts of it are truly root and spread in a community. So it's just like, you know, it's all the time scale. Like I kind of hate the, 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 it's, it feels kind of like a trope at this point. The, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. quote, the arc of justice is long. Mm-hmm. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice because sometimes it bends back the other way. Sometimes yeah. it bends towards injustice and oppression, but yeah. it creates a wave that ultimately breaks on the shores of freedom. I like to believe and hope. Mm-hmm. And is it, what are your thoughts on, because like you said, this, it, it takes a while, change takes a while, but then usually, you know, history shows us, um, there are times that, well, people are not patient and for one reason or the other, and that, I'm not here to say it's right or wrong. So then the result of that would be, um, an uprising. Can you, anything in your studies speak to um, uprisings and how they may push towards change or anything like that? Like, is, the, is any of that appearing at all? Yeah. So um, I cannot think particularly of like research studies that indicate this, but I also study history. Okay. And I, and I think that the study of history is really important for denormalizing gains made by previous movements, you know, things we take for granted now. Let's take, for example, the 40-hour work week. Right. Working five days a week and having two days off. Mm-hmm. People fought for that in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. People died for that. You know, the Haymarket, um, there's a hay, there's a bombing at, at um, the Haymarket in Chicago that, um, like, anarchists rose up and literally were committing, like, acts of acts of violence in order to agitate for like working, you know, better working conditions, suitable hours, all these things. And today, we just assume it's always been this way, right? Mm-hmm. We all you know, 40 hours a week, five days, you know, uh, five days on, two days off. And so studying that history, it then brings alive the potential for us to fight for even more. Because this is a social construct, the Absolutely. current way we live our lives. So why don't we have a four-day four work week? Why don't we have... um $23 an hour minimum wage, which, you know, if you take into account gains in productivity over the last couple of decades is what people should be paid now. If, you know, wages that kept up with inflation, all, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily what I find in the research, in the research studies, as much as what I find in the study of history that shows what uprisings can accomplish. Wow. And uh, I'll speak to your, to what you said earlier too, about that balance of studies versus experience and history literally is that yeah exactly exactly yeah you nailed it it's like a kind of a qualitative kind of research mm-hmm. of like understanding like you know we got our our facts that showed you the quantified data and we got facts in the qualitative data of what is what people have lived through and so bringing all that together mm-hmm. to push to push forward 
So like, what would you tell someone who, if, if they're listening to us right now and it's like, okay, well, I know I don't necessarily want, I, I, I'm not really built for, for politics, but I do want to affect change in my community. I don't, I don't like some of the things that I'm seeing in my community and, and I don't know where to start. What, what would you be able to share with folks is like, okay, I want to do something positive, but I'm not sure where to start. Um, well, you know, the phrase, the personal is political. It's often applied to like consumerism and things like that, your consumer choices. Mm-hmm. But the personal is also political in that we, that's, that uh, so much of, so much um, negotiation for power can actually take place in our own neighborhoods and in our own lives mm-hmm. and not necessarily on the steps of City Hall or in the halls of Congress. So getting together with your neighbors and saying, hey, look, what are your needs? What kind of skills do you offer? So that we can keep each other safe and and keep each other healthy, yeah. like knowing that. So, for example, you know, if uh, you got a you got a neighbor across the street who struggles with mental illness, but is medicating it to a level that they are able to function highly in society, mm-hmm. knowing that knowing what happens if they go off their meds might be the difference between you being able to respond effectively when you see them out in their yard in their underwear and think about calling the cops. Um, and, then, and then that person getting shot down and killed if a state response comes to that scenario. Absolutely. So through joining together in our neighborhoods, it may not feel like politics to simply know, hey, you can call me if you run out of your medication and I'll go down to Publix for you and get it for you. Those little acts of solidarity are political because they change the balance of power societally when you know when this happens at scale yeah uh, and it directly relates relates to public health it directly relates to public safety it directly relates to economic justice if you're doing wealth redistribution on your very street thinking about who needs what and making sure they have it so um if you're not involved in politics if you're not involved in policy making that's okay mm-hmm. that's not the only terrain of struggle okay uh, thinking about just in your own life how you can show solidarity and care and show up for people um, is an act of politics as well. Yeah. And I, it takes me back to, I remember, uh, so like as a kid, there's some blacks that like, well, you get home and mom already, I was raised by my grandmother, my, my grandparents. So if I did something I wasn't supposed to do, my, my grandmother already knew because Miss Johnson down the block has already called her. She's already That's called right. her. Do you know DeMonte is out here doing, and, and that's community work that like now looking back at it, you're like, wow, you, you didn't realize that you were in a self-contained, self-healing community because all the, the, the moms on the block and the grandmas on the block, just certain things were not allowed. And then we still would come together, like you said, break bread and have a block party. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's politics right there. Yeah. Ms. Johnson calling your grandma was politics. Yeah. Excellent. So, and so you, you talked a little bit about you being a hip hop artist. And mm-hmm. so like, if you can just speak about like, kind of like what brought you to just taking an interest in hip hop and kind of like, you know, what does that look like now for you? Yeah. And so. And so I love being on a show about public health because so much, so much intersects with public health. So for me, hip hop was therapy. Mm -hmm. I, you know, hit a patch 
where I was really deeply, um, deeply embedded with, you know, substance abuse and was, you know, turning to self-harm and further substance abuse and just like really not coping well Mm -hmm. with the struggles I was facing. And so I was like, you know what, fuck it. I am going to start, I love hip hop. Um, and I'm going to just start putting my thoughts on paper and meter and rhyme and just exercise, just like cast out all this like darkness and illness in me. And then I'm just gonna get it off my chest and I'm gonna move on with my life. Okay. Um, but it didn't quite work out that way because the, the, the process of healing is not linear. You gotta, you continue to learn more about yourself, Mm -hmm. um, and encounter new crises that need processing. And so hip hop has stayed with me as a way to continue to process what I what I have lived and what I am thinking about and come to embrace who I am through studying who I am by putting the pen on paper. Um, and so that is kind of how I got into hip hop and how I continue to practice it today. Wow. Excellent. Because, you know, I, I share that same love for hip hop and I just remember um, certain songs in hip-hop were pivotal to my upbringing and had a strong influence to what I do for a living, just listening to the message and listening to groups like Public Enemy and just how, you know, before I knew what any sort of civic engagement was, I was learning, even from groups like NWA, that, like, folks see the other side of their music, but there were some gems and jewels in, in, in the messages in the music. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why they call, I mean, unfortunately, it's been called this by people like Marco Rubio, but they call hip-hop the CNN of the hood. Yeah. Because it, it, it like, broadcasts to the world, yo, this is what we're living through. And not just what, this is what we're living through, but you get with cats like Kendrick Lamar, oh. uh, or like Saba, or No Name, where they're starting to also deliver diagnoses of why things are like this. Um, and like on occasion articulate a world where things could be better. And so, um, yeah, I mean, just, it's very, it can be very enlightening of just staying connected with struggle and processing it as well. Yeah. And the, and the artists that you, that you bring up, um, it also breaks it down where maybe people that are not like, okay, I've been feeling this, but then all of a sudden you'll hear something from no name or, or Kendrick Lamar. And then you're like, Oh my goodness. They're saying what I've been feeling. They're saying mm-hmm. what I've been thinking. And can you talk about like, cause it sounds like what I'm hearing, like there's almost, there's like, like you said, there's a cathartic release to, to, to the oh, yeah. art form itself. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also not only just diagnosing the ills in the community um, and, 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 you know, doing investigative journalism and to a certain degree, um about crises that we're living through it's also a site of so much joy um it's a place where you know even the joy that we have as black people that is not what the news wants to cover because it doesn't make headlines um as much as fear-mongering or you know we get pigeonholed into boxes of only being a suffering people to have those moments of joy through the music uh, i think it was emma goldman said you know if i can't dance it's not my revolution like any sort of political work as well has to be joyful and has to be full of love and you find that in hip-hop so much when people just celebrate themselves celebrate where they come from have a good time just totally divorced of analysis just like i'm in the club like yeah. getting, like you know just popping champagne and i think 
that's um, I find that fascinating because I remember just I remember just hearing and it only being presented as like people that are quote unquote doing the work all they do is the work mm-hmm. and and I like how you speak to this balance like no like there's joy there's laughter you have to you know balance that so wow what what does self care look like for you since you know like you have these different roles that you do and you're showing up for people and really hearing a lot of different things and, and then you go do the work to try to help facilitate change. So what does self-care look like for you as, as you balance things as, as long as, as well as with your studies? Yeah. So, I mean, as a, I don't know if you can hear the birds up there as I'm, as I'm speaking, but I'm actually out on a walk right now. Oh, like, that's I was amazing. Um, enjoying some of the, you know, waning sunshine in these months of the year seeing the colors of the leaves change i feel like time outside especially time engaging with your body you know i know like marathon runner or anything like that but just like putting one foot in front of another uh breathing fresh air and then having this time to just like um to daydream Mm -hmm. to wonder to make those connections free of any sort of productivity um productivity uh drive it's not like, oh, I got to write this op-ed by midnight mm. or, oh, I got to send this email. I'm just thinking about shit. I'm just like, wow. Boy, what if this? What if the world could be this way? Okay. Um, and things like that. Just having time to daydream is really critical. Um, and it's like, you know, just watch the flow of your thoughts and just admire them uh, is an act of self-care um, without a doubt. Mm. So, yeah, go down the walks and let my mind wander. That's, it's huge. Sorry, there's now a plane going overhead. So. No, no worries. That, <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I also find myself, um, actually, I lived in Georgia for a few years. And oh, I, yeah. I would have my favorite trail where I would do exactly what you said. Just let my thoughts take me away and just just be. It, it's so important to just be. Because um, like you said, we sometimes what's being pushed in front of us is always from a, a state of mm-hmm. a deficit. Oh yeah. And we're just all also like called to consume. And every minute of the day we get home from work and we put on Netflix or we listen to a podcast or we scroll Twitter, mm-hmm. just consuming and consuming media and having all these ideas pushed upon us without stopping to think like, like what, what's inside me? You know, no more of this external stimulus that's telling me what to think and feel and casting everything as a deficit, like you said, hmm. like what could be? Let me just spend some time with myself, um, away from this, this you know corporate influence, frankly, uh, and to see what I think and feel about wow. anything, everything. Right, that's excellent. So, as we bring this to a close, I just what are some of the what's some of the best ways that listeners could support you, learn a little bit about you, and more of your work? How how can folks get involved and get and get in touch with you, your work. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Mariah for Athens, F-O-R Athens, as well as Instagram. Uh, you can connect with me there. You can DM me if you got questions about doing this work. Um, like, I, you know, the movement is not just local. It's it's translocal. It's transporting these ideas into new spaces. So, like, I'm very open to helping and talking with other people. So, yeah, you can hit me up on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Mariah for Athens. Uh, if you want to support the work, um, Frankly, my Venmo is Mariah-Parker-2. If you want to chip in, I do a lot of mutual aid in the community, uh, getting people diapers and meals and money for laundry or gas to get to work. And so 
if you want to help do that community care that you know discuss that is politics mm-hmm. here you, you know hit me on venmo mariah hyphen parker hyphen two um or you can, you can give to my political campaign i'm up for re-election a couple of years from now but um sort of building a, a war chest to defend because you know not everybody's with this radical shit <laughs> that's true um and so i'm gonna <laughs> definitely have to defend my right to represent in a couple of years so if you want to um give treasure to that endeavor um you can find me on act blue you know to search mariah parker mm-hmm. um and give that way excellent and i definitely want to let you know that you are always welcome on adult public health podcast um I just appreciate your authenticity. I appreciate you doing the work and and not even like not once did you speak about, oh, well, to perfection and things like that. Like just just really showing up and being there and, and being your true selves and and giving us some jewels at what we can do, some of those same things. And and then, you know, I, as you say, like, don't forget to dream. Don't forget to wonder. So oh, freedom dreaming is so critical. The messiness is fundamental. So don't ever try to cast that out. Embrace it. It's so much part of the work. And thank you. This was a lovely conversation. I would love to come back anytime. Excellent. Well, thanks again so much. And this has been a Dope Public Health Podcast with love, respect, and advocacy. Peace.